All right, if you would uh, open your Bibles with me to John 17. Uh, we were in uh, the first few verses of John 17 last week. Uh, we're going to finish up the chapter this week. Um, so I want to start out by asking if you have ever had the privilege of witnessing a sacred moment. Just one of those moments that you know is different from all the other ones. It's special, it's fragile, it's, it's intimate, it's, it's sacred. I had one of those moments about five years ago in the back of a cab in Lijiang, China. So just for some reference, China is kind of shaped like a chicken. You have like the head, the body, the tail, like Lijiang is like right here in the butt. Like that's where Lijiang is. And I was on a mission trip uh, with a five person team and there were four guys and one girl. And the girl's name was Audra, and Audra is awesome. Um, if I were stranded on a desert island and I had to pick one person in the world to help keep me alive, like Audra would be on that short list. Um, and so Audra was a missionary in China for a few years, so she was leading our team. And so she was sitting in the front of the cab talking with the driver, and then I was in the very, very back, the third row with my friend Drew, and in the middle, uh, there was my friend Whaley. And Whaley was uh, a filmer, videographer, so he's always got his phone out, his camera out. He was taking a video. And he was filming, and he was filming Audra. And Audra was speaking to the uh, Nashi driver. So she was speaking Nashi. She's one of like eight Americans in the world that can speak this dialect of Mandarin, and then there was also just another Chinese guy back here, and so she was like speaking Nashi and Mandarin and English, just going back and forth very, very fluidly. And as Whaley was filming her, I saw like his eyes kind of tear up a little bit. So Audrey and Whaley had been dating for a few months, and uh, it was just something about when Whaley saw Audra just in her element just doing what she loves to do, being in a foreign culture, engaging with people from all across the world. And as he teared up, I looked over at my friend Drew, and I was like, did, did you see what I just saw? And he's like, yeah, I, I think we just saw Whaley recognize the woman that he was going to marry. And they did. They got, they got married a few months later. So it, it was just one of those special, sacred moments that only two people in the world, me and Drew, got to witness this man's life change in the back of a cabin, middle of nowhere, China. John 17 is one of those special and sacred moments. It's different. It's intimate. This is Jesus' last night on earth. He's been with his disciples for three years. He's been eating meals with them. He's been teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God. He's been performing miracles. He's been healing people. He's just been doing incredible ministry. And it's his last night, and he has just had his last meal. And we are getting to overhear the final words that he shares with his father. So last week, we looked at the first five verses where Jesus prayed that he would be glorified through going to the cross. And then for the rest of the chapter... Jesus prays for us. And the more I thought about it this week, that really kind of struck me as special. If I knew that I were going to die tomorrow, I would probably spend an entire chapter praying for myself. <laughs> if I were feeling like really, really holy that day, I might throw in like one 
verse prayer at the end for people who weren't about to go through literal hell the next day. But on his last night, knowing that he was about to go to the cross, Jesus spent the majority of his time praying for us. And so just let that soften your soul a little bit. That on his last night, Jesus had you in mind. That he was praying for you. And so this week, we're going to be looking at the things specifically that Jesus prayed for us. So glory is still central. Last week he prayed that he would be glorified, and now he is praying that we would glorify him through what he prays for us. Okay, so in verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Verse 22, the glory that you have given to me, I have given to them. Last week was how God was going to glorify God. This week is how we glorify God. And so as I read through this, I think that there are five ways that Jesus prays that we would glorify him. Um, We're only going to look at three. Uh, The first two uh, in verse 11, that the Father would keep us in his name. And then in verse 13, that the joy that he has would be fulfilled in us. Um, Not that those aren't important. It's just that we've actually already covered those. John and Jesus have addressed those earlier in this gospel. We spent Sundays on them. So we're just going to be focusing on on the last three things that Jesus prays for us. So pick up with me in verse 17. John 17, verse 17. Jesus prays for us. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. So sanctify is just a really, you know, churchy $5 word for to set apart. To set apart for a different purpose. To make holy. And so Jesus is praying that we would be set apart to be holy, that we would glorify God by being holy, by being godly. And there are a lot of instructions and commands in Scripture about pursuing holiness and about being holy. But I think a mistake that a lot of times we make in the church is we never really give a good reason for it. We just say, you need to be holy, you need to pursue godliness, you need to you know, say no to those sins, but we never really get a good reason why. And so if you're a parent in the room, you, know, you want to raise good, holy, godly kids, and so you try and you know, instill these values in them, and you say, you know, don't say bad words, like be nice to your friends, obey your uh, you know, mom and dad. And like they do, kids like to ask why. And because they're kids, they don't ask once, they ask 48 times a day. Okay, and so on your best days, you might be able to always give the answer why, but parents, eventually you get worn down, and when you get asked why for the 40th time that day, what do you say? Because I said so. So It's a perfectly understandable response, like I, I get it, but if all that your kids hear are instruction, command, demand, do this, do that, and they never get a gospel reason why then what you're going to end up with is a very well-behaved Pharisee. You're going to have someone who can do all the right things, say all the right things. They are going to look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, their heart is dead. And so when it comes to pursuing holiness, we have to always know why. Uh, Jen Oshman wrote a great article this week. She was kind of addressing this need for parents to always give a gospel why to their kids, and I think it applies here. 
She said, in the Bible, Paul answers the question of why over and over and over. And every letter he wrote to the early churches, he didn't merely give them instructions for godly living and say, because I said so. He gave them and us a foundation, a motivation, and a robust reason for doing what God asks us to do. So in pursuing this holiness and pursuing godliness, we have to know why. And honestly, you could probably just flip to any random page in the Bible and point, and you would find a motivation for holiness. Just pick a page and pick a reason. But in his prayer, Jesus specifically prays that we would be holy because it glorifies God. Well, how, how, how does that work? How does my living a holy life, how does my living a godly life glorify God? Well, how you live reveals what you love. How you live shows what you love. The actions that you do show what you value most. And so say um, that you are living in order just to get more money and accumulate wealth, get a nicer house, a nicer car, have the nicest clothes, then what you are doing is you are saying that things and possessions and materials are what you value most. Okay, where your treasure is, where your money goes, that is what your heart naturally follows. That is what you love most. If uh, you, you know, view pornography, that shows that uh, you are seeking self-fulfillment and self-gratification at the expense of someone else. You are degrading the image of God in somebody else and that you are looking to only satisfy yourself. All right, if, you, if you're addicted to social media, and you, know, you get your identity and your value from likes and clicks, and you let you know, people online or people you've never even met have a, a more authoritative word in your life than God does. So the way that you glorify God by being holy is by living in a way that he is the most valuable and the most satisfying person in your life. When you can say no to every other worldly and lesser pleasure and say, you are not enough for me. You can't satisfy me. You don't define me. God, you are the most valuable, intimate, infinitely worthy, glorious, and fulfilling person that I know. That is how you glorify God in living a holy life. I think holiness is the most powerful sermon than an individual can preach. So that's the why. Why we pursue holiness is because it shows that God is infinitely more valuable than any other lesser pleasure that this world has to offer. So Jesus gives us the why, but then he gives us the how. Sanctify them in your truth, and then the how. Your word is truth. Okay, so, so how do we live these holy lives? By living it according to the truth of this word. Now, Jesus made a lot of very countercultural claims. And in 2018, in a postmodern Western society where everyone says there is no ultimate truth, there is no ultimate reality, my truth is my truth, your truth is your truth, even if they completely 100% contradict, as long as you are genuine about it, it's right. And so to hear Jesus say, 
Sanctify them in your truth. My word is truth. That might be the most countercultural thing that Jesus could say to 2018 Americans. So notice he didn't say that my word is true. He said my word is truth. So scripture is not one of many truths. It is the truth. It is the standard by which all other truths are measured. Okay, and so I want to be careful here. I've heard a, a lot of great sermons and a lot of great lectures on, you know, the, the historicity of the Bible, how we know it's reliable and trustworthy and how it compares to other uh, religious texts, you know, really kind of diving into the nuts and bolts of how we actually know that this word is true. But I want to be careful that we don't dissect the living and active word of God to the point that we, that we kill it and miss the point. And so remember what Jesus is doing here. He's not teaching, he's not preaching, he's praying. And the disciples, they're just overhearing this prayer that Jesus is offering up to the Father. And so when Jesus prayed, sanctify them in your truth, your word is truth. It's not like he looked up around at the disciples and said, do you have any questions? Do you understand that? Can I give you like a really long theological explanation of how we know that this word is true? He simply spoke it and let them over, let the disciples overhear it, and he was inviting them into an experience. He was inviting them into an experience. He invites us into the intimacy that he shares with the Father. This is, this is just a come and see invitation. Come and see the power and the truthfulness of this word. And so if you're an unbeliever in the room, if you, um, you know, don't believe the, cr- the claims of Christ, then, uh, then just let me invite you. Give it a shot. You know, re- read through the book of John. Take a month, read through it once, you know, in one or two sittings, and then just read one chapter a day. And I just invite you to examine this word and then let it examine you back. Just let the spirit and the power of this book do its work. It doesn't have to be anything mystical or magical. You don't have to light a candle and play atmospheric music. Just give the word a shot and let the word do the work. And if you're a Christian in the room, if, if you already believe that what Jesus says here is true, then just remember what he said in John 15 and just abide in it. Remain, stay, go back for an extended period of time and immerse yourself in the story that God is writing. A story of redeeming a people out of sin and slavery, of bringing them back to himself, of making them holy. Immerse yourself in that story and pursue holiness more and more and more by the grace of God. So Jesus prays for us to be holy. And then in verse 18, he moves on to the second thing and he prays for our mission. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So there's another reason right there. Why do we pursue holiness? For the sake of mission. The two always go together. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that, gives, that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Okay, did you catch that? 
so that they, the world, may see your good works, your holiness, and that that little light would point them to the Father of lights, and they would give glory to the one who is in heaven. And so our holiness is meant to fuel our mission. It is meant to be a signpost to the world that points to the kingdom of God. Now, unfortunately, I think in the church we have a very poor and negative view of the world. We have a us and them mentality, a sinners and saints mentality. And so what we do is we draw a line in the sand around us. And we say that the people who are inside this line, the people who look like me, believe all the same things that I do, who act like me, the people who are just like me, those are the insiders. And everyone else is out. And I don't want to get outside of my line, outside of my bubble, because I might get a little bit of sin on me. When we do that, we forget our mission. We forget the very thing that Jesus prayed for us right as he was going to the cross. He didn't pray that we would just stay in our little holy huddle, but that we would go out into the world on mission. And so we have got to stop being afraid of those outsiders. The world is not the enemy. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says that Satan has blinded the eyes of unbelievers. So the world is not our enemy. They are victims of the enemy. And we have to go to them in love. I I really think we've just abused the line that we are in the world, but not of the world. It's like, yeah, we're in the world, but we try and get back as 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 soon as we can. And so I think just for our context, for for Redemption Parker, I think we might need to reverse that. We are not of the world, but we are in it. We are on mission. We are going to the world. This hasn't happened to me in a while, but when I was in Birmingham, I would have, you know, kids who are about to graduate high school, and they would say, I'm I'm thinking about going into ministry. Um, You know, I'm I'm thinking about college. Do you think I should go to, to a Bible college? Um, you know, and I, I would tell them, you could go to a Bible college. You'd learn theology, you, you would get a great head start. Um, but, but I can't tell you how many guys I sat next to in seminary who they had just been in, you know, private school and Bible college and seminary their whole life. And Lord knows they got better grades than me. Like, I will freely admit that. Um, and, and I hope this doesn't sound prideful. I don't mean it to. But I think I'm going to be a better pastor than they are. Because I can talk about something other than, you know, definitions of limited atonement or your methods of Bible interpretation. And so if someone comes up to me and asks, you know, I'm thinking about going into ministry, should I go to a Bible school? You know, there's a place for that, but nine times out of ten, and I will freely accept pushback on this, and God bless my poor mother if she hears me say this. (laughs) I would say go to the biggest state school you can find and learn how to be in a bar on a Friday night. Go how to learn to talk to a normal person. Get outside of your little holy Christian bubble, because you're the weird one. (laughs) You believe that a dead man came back to life, and you bet everything on that. You're the weird one. So go learn how to be around a normal person, how to talk about, uh, you know, something that they enjoy, and learn how to have such gospel fluency that you can translate and cross those boundaries. So Jesus has sent us on mission. 
as important as our Sunday gatherings are and as important as our gospel communities are, they are not everything. We are meant to go into the world. I learned this week, I think this is really interesting. Jesus told a lot of parables, a lot of stories in order to communicate truths of the kingdom of God. And only one of them took place in a temple or any kind of spiritual or religious setting. All of the other ones took place on a farm or dirt road or around a dinner table or some kind of workplace, all, you know, secular environments. I think Jesus was trying to communicate that the gospel is meant to go to the world. He was putting it in secular terms so that secular people could understand. We have to learn how to talk like that. We come together to hear the gospel, and then we go out to tell the gospel. We gather so that we can scatter. And God is glorified in our going and fulfilling the mission that he has given to us. And then the last thing that Jesus prays for us, in verses 20, 22, and 23, Jesus prays for us to be unified, that we may all be one, that we may become perfectly one. Last week we talked about how if anything is in the Word of God, you need to pay attention, but if God repeats himself, then you really need to listen up. And just in his last words, in his last night on earth, Jesus prayed three times that we would be unified. And that's really smart. It is smart to pray, one, for us to be on mission, and then for us to be unified. Because if you're not unified, then your mission is going to fail. It's like if a quarterback you know, and his receiver aren't on the same page, quarterback throws a deep ball, receiver runs a short route, they failed. So the mission will only be as successful as you are unified. The mission will only be as successful as we are unified. You want to know what will tear apart a church at the seams and ruin our gospel witness to the world. Sometimes churches die because of doctrinal theological issues. Sometimes it's finances, but by and large, it is because disunity. It is because of people bickering and gossiping and talking behind people's back and tearing people down, and the gospel just cannot survive in that kind of culture. And I honestly can't think of anything sadder than a church being ripped apart by disunity. If there is one group of people in the world who should be unified, it is the church. Because the gospel is the only true and lasting thing that can keep us together. If what unifies us is, uh, you know, our country or our politics, that is going to fail. Okay? How many Romans thousands of years ago thought, this is going to be forever, this is my identity, this is what I put my hope in, and look where they are now. And so, you know, it is Veterans Day, and and we do support those, and we are thankful for the men and women who have served and given their lives. But our hope and our unity cannot be based on our American identity or our politics. If it's, you know, a sports team, you know, eventually that team is going to suck. (laughs) And they're just not even going to play that sport anymore. So any worldly unifying factor is going to fail you. The only thing that can keep us together for the long term, for all of eternity, is the gospel. In Ephesians 4, Paul wrote, Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, 
just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Um, <laughs> I've been a little irreverent, so I'll just keep going. Um, there, there's a difference between preaching under the power of the Holy Spirit and preaching because you're pissed off. Um, and so I, I ask for grace now and for forgiveness if I go too far. But as a pastor, something that makes me want to bang my head against a wall is when someone comes up to me and says like, hey man, like we hear the gospel every week and we love it, but that one song that you sing, just could you just not do that anymore? Or, you know, we, we hear the gospel every week, but, you know, the kids ministry, it's not, you know, custom fit to my family. Or we hear the gospel every week and I saw somebody wearing a hat and that just doesn't really sit right with me. And I, I just want to plead with that person. We are living as exiles here. We are trying to live a wartime lifestyle. We are trying to be on mission in the world for the gospel. So don't get distracted by, you know, the tertiary window dressing stuff. I want us to be a church that majors on the majors and minors on the minors. And the major stuff is that we have been united by the gospel, that Christ has died for us, that he has given us a mission, and that we are meant to go out to the world together on that mission. Just a few chapters earlier, as he started this upper room discourse and dinner with the disciples, Jesus said, by this will the world know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you love one another, that is how the world will know that you are my disciples. So a few minutes ago I said that holiness is the best sermon that an individual can preach, which is true. I think the best sermon that a whole church can preach is when we're unified. When the world can look at us and they can see someone who is black and white, Republican, Democrat, poor, rich, whatever you want, young, old, the world can say they have no business being together. I don't have a category for them. I don't see how they're united. But once you get inside, you say, these people aren't looking at worldly exterior things. These people are united by the gospel. That is the most beautiful picture that we can give to the world, to the hope that we have. So towards that end, would you pray with me? Lord, we join your prayer for us. We thank you that you prayed for us and that you continue to make intercession for us. Spirit, would you move in our hearts and in our minds? Would you remind us of the gospel, that it is our hope and our unity? Would you soften our hearts to love you more and to love each other more? Lord, we are very broken people in a very broken world, and we need you. And so we ask that today and for this week that you would meet us and give us grace to fulfill the mission that you've given to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.